begin. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for that. Today, we're moving on to the fourth C in our seven C's of history. Remember that seven C's of history. That's that outline, that basic outline of all redemptive history and even the future for humanity. And we've already gone through the first three C's. Our first C, creation, takes place around 4000 BC. God makes the world. And then our next C, corruption, the fall of man into sin, takes place around the same time. It wasn't very long after creation that man fell. And then 1,650 years go by. Centuries go by. And around 2,350 BC, we ran into our third C, catastrophe, the worldwide flood. We spent the last several weeks talking about that catastrophe and how it interacts even with our present day in multiple ways. But today, we've come to that fourth C. The confusion, the confusion at Babel. Now, about how many years after the flood is this event? If you remember, when we talked through this outline a number of lessons ago, it's only about 100 years later, which is kind of crazy. Dispersion at Babel takes place around 2240 BC. And we'll see a little bit more specifically as to how we arrive at that date, that estimate. But the closeness of the date may shock you a little bit. Considering how serious and devastating God's judgment in the worldwide flood was, how can man so soon rebel against God again? Noah and Shem are not even dead yet, according to the information provided in Genesis. And yet man as a whole is rebelling against God again. Now, in some ways, that shouldn't surprise us, because what does God announce at the very end of the flood? After Noah giving a sacrifice to God, God says, I'm not going to flood the earth again, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man hadn't changed as a result of the flood, and God knew that. And so, in some ways, this rebellion is not that unexpected. But this does show us just how deep our problem with sin is. As humans, sin is so ruinous to our race that even after a overwhelming cataclysmic judgment like the flood, man will again choose to rebel. This is why we need the Lord's radical salvation. Now, when it comes to Babel, this is another event in our history, both the rebellion of man and God's response to it, that has had a profound impact on all of us. And it goes very far in explaining why the world is the way that it is today. If you want to have a good foundation for understanding disciplines like history or anthropology or sociology, then you have to understand what happened at Babel. Now we're gonna take two lessons to examine this event in our history, this one, and then the next time I'm teaching with you. Here's our agenda for today. A little bit more expansive. Normally I don't have quite as many items, but we're first going to examine the historical event, the historical account of this event in Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Then we'll take time to identify what was the sin or sins that called for God's judgment at Babel. We'll explain why mankind was scattered as a result of what happened at Babel. We'll discuss when this event took place and how we come up with a date for it. And then we'll describe how memories of Babel actually exist all over the world today. Of course, the Bible stands on its own, but it is amazingly affirmed by even data and things in the world today. Now let's pray, and then we'll get to our lesson. Lord God, I thank you for this word. This, uh, it shows us the world as it really is. Lord, your word really is illuminating. It is enlightening. It does show us Show us the way by your light. God, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this well, that I'd be faithful to your word, and that it'd be clear, and that it'd have its proper impact on those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's start by looking at God's brief but very informative account of what happened at Babel. So please open your Bibles to Genesis 11, and we'll read verses 1 to 9. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now, just so you know, what happened in between the flood and this account? In Genesis 
9, at the end of Genesis 9, we hear a prophetic curse announced by Noah on his son Ham's descendant, Canaan. It says Canaan will be cursed. And of course, that has implications for Israel's own interaction with the peoples of Canaan. And then in chapter 10, we get a genealogy that describes how Noah's sons and their descendants spread out throughout the world. And they go in all different directions. But why? Well, then Genesis 11 follows and explains. And that's what we're going to read. Genesis 11, 1 to 9, please follow along with me. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord, and you know, that's Yahweh. Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. As always, let's start with just basic observations of the text. Notice that it says, everyone, at that time, there was only one language and one dialect on the earth. Everyone spoke all the same words. And of course, this is very different from what we experience today. We know there are tons of languages in the world. And even within a language, there are many, many dialects. For instance, have you ever stumbled over the differences between American English and British English? Same language, but not the same dialect. We don't share the same vocabulary. For example, the British don't call it a television, but a what? A telly. How'd you see that on the telly? And the Brits don't call it an advertisement, but a what? Advertisement. I saw it on the advertisement. Now, such differences can be humorous, but they can also lead to a lot of misunderstanding and frustration. And this is, this is not the way it was in the days before Babel. Humanity at this time had one language, one dialect, one vocabulary. Everyone could understand everyone else. Now, the text says that the people traveled east, though it could be translated they traveled from the east, and the people, uh, the people were traveling presumably from where the ark had landed. Now, where was it that the ark had landed? It would be Ararat. You see a little map on your screen with Mount Ararat big, big there. But notice that Genesis 8.4, I know it's not in front of you, but Genesis 8.4, it says the mountains, plural. The ark landed at the mountains of Ararat. So this could be anywhere in the region of Ararat. There's actually some good geological reasons for thinking that Mount Ararat, as it's known today, was not the mountain on which Noah's Ark landed, because there's many signs that it was an active volcano in the past and probably was during the days of the flood. So that would not be a good place to land the Ark. Anyways, in that region is where the Ark settled. And so the only surviving people came from that area, from that mountain range, and they journeyed to the land of Shinar. Now, where's Shinar? We learn elsewhere from the Bible, like Genesis 10, Daniel 1, that Shinar refers to the land around Babylon, the plain between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Now, let me see if I can point this out on the map with my little pointer. So if you see on the screen where it says Babylon here, it's actually a little bit far north of where the city of Babylon would have been. The city of Babylon would have been down around here in between the two rivers. Okay, let's see if I can turn off the laser pointer. Okay, good, I can't. So 
the people are traveling towards the land of Shinar, that would be the area around the city of Babylon, that plain. Human race is multiplying. They're moving south and east to these plains, and this would be where the future kingdom of Babylon would arise. Now, what is it that they build there? Or they, they suddenly get this urge to build, and what is it that they want to build? Notice it says they want to build a city and a tower. A city and a tower. We often remember the tower, forget the city, but they actually they start with a city. Let's build a city. I want to build both those things. Now, probably one of the reasons we forget about the city is because we don't hear much about it. It's not described for us. But the tower does get a description. The tower is described as a with a top that will reach into heaven. That's a very tall tower. Now, what might this tower have looked like? Well, we can't say for sure. There's all sorts of interesting artistic impressions of the Tower of Babel. But if we look at other ancient towers, especially in the area of the Middle East, Mesopotamia and the like, we can get an idea. Though these ancient tall buildings were known by another name. Anybody know what the towers of Babylon and Mesopotamia were called? Yeah, ziggurats, ziggurats. I'll show you a picture there. We've found many, many ziggurats, remains of ziggurats archaeologically. Ziggurats were often used as temples or religious structures. It was thought that these buildings, because they extended into the heavens, that they were a place where gods and men could meet together. They're kind of like ladders for men to reach the gods and for the gods to reach men. Now, it's quite possible that the Tower of Babel was conceived as a super ziggurat, the tallest, most skillful ziggurat that men could produce in those days. And notice the construction materials for building this tower, this ziggurat, baked bricks and tar for mortar. And notice the reasons given in our text for why the people want to build the city and the tower. They want to make a name for themselves and they want to prevent themselves from being scattered. They don't want to be scattered across the face of the whole earth. Now, notice what God observes when he comes to look at man's work. God states that this observable unity in man makes man powerful to accomplish whatever he sets out to do. God even says nothing will be impossible for him. God then decides to confuse man's language so the people won't be able to understand each other. And notice the phrasing. Do you notice anything similar about what God says and what the people say? Statements begin the same way. Come, let us, right? The people said, come, let us make a city, let us make a tower, let us take bricks and burn them thoroughly. And God says, come, let us. This likely, by the way, is an implicit reference to the Trinity doesn't make too much sense for God to be saying this to angels. God is acting independently here. Of course, the doctrine of the Trinity is not explained in this section of scripture, but it fits with the doctrine of the Trinity as it revealed in other places. And this is, this is profound here. Man is powerful when he's united. But how does that compare to God? God's united purpose within the Godhead proves stronger than man. Now, what is the result of God's action of confusing man's language? We see three in the text. The people scatter. They stop building the city. And the place receives a new name, Babel. Now, why is it called Babel? The text says it's because there God confused the languages. And you've heard me say this before. Anytime a name is given in the Old Testament and then there's an explanation, you can bet that that name has something to do with the explanation. And so it is here. The name Babel is associated with the primitive Hebrew verb balal, which means to mix, to confound, or to overflow. Thus, the name Babel, from a Hebrew perspective, has the idea of confusion. The name was, of the city was called confusion because there God confused the languages. By the way, Every time the name Babylon appears in the Old Testament, it's the same name as the one recorded here. Even though our translations say Babel in this passage and Babylon in other passages, it's actually the same name. 
So the Hebrews, whenever they heard the term Babylon, they would have been able to connect it with the city and the event that took place here in Genesis 11. This, I think, has something to do with also why there's reference to Babylon in the New Testament. There's a, there's a link that goes all the way back to Genesis 11. Now, I say that in the Hebrew, Babel means confusion. But why do we call it Babylon today? Well, that etymology into English, it comes via Akkadian into Greek. Akkadian was an ancient Babylonian language. And Bab-Elu Bob in Akkadian means gate of God, gate of God. And that got transliterated into Greek until Babylonian, which means gate of the gods. So that's interesting. On the one hand, the Hebrew is confusion, but on Akkadian, in Akkadian and into Greek, and then even into English, the name of Babylon has the idea of the meeting place with God or the gate of God. Now, taking time to make these observations, let's now ask some interpretation questions. All right, so what is the great sin? What is the root sin put on display in this passage? Clearly, it's pride. It is the pride of man on display. And it's almost to the point where it sounds ridiculous. It looks childish. They say, let us make for ourselves a name. Let's show how great we are. Let's build a monument to us. Let's cause all people who are to come and even God and his angels in heaven to behold our glory. Well, this is silly. This is silly. How can man be saying this? They want to make their mark on the universe. They want all creation to look at them by building this city and this tower. And how different this is from people like David and Solomon. They were great men, great builders. Solomon builds the temple of God. David helped build the temple of God. But what was their attitude about it? They were building this building for the Lord's honor, not their own. And they recognized that whatever skill or power or glory they had, it was given to them by God. And they were not to glorify themselves. But our forefathers, those Men and women at Babel, the very descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they did not give God his due, but they sought to steal his glory. And how silly it is because God so easily unravels it all. Man looks powerful, looks great, look what he's accomplishing, and then God steps in. Where's your power, oh man? Where's your wisdom? Where's your glory? You can't even understand each other anymore. God could say, I did this to you with a simple word. I just made a command and everything changed. And this is consistent with what God does. God will not give his glory, his rightly deserved glory to another. Man has no right to try and take God's glory. Now, this is ridiculous, isn't it? But you know what? The same behavior is manifested by man today. Even in you and me. Isn't that right? <laughs> Our pride doesn't seem so ridiculous to us, but it is just as ridiculous as what man was trying to accomplish at Babel. The old man, that principle of sin, that sinfulness that we still have with us, it craves for our intrinsic value to be affirmed. Intrinsic value. In our flesh, we want people to see how much we deserve love, wealth, honor, power, or whatever it is. And we get depressed or we get angry when people don't honor us the way we think we ought. We even get angry at God. We get angry at God for not giving us what we think we deserve. We fall into self-pity. We might even use spirituality to slake our desire for self-exaltation. We can become like the Pharisees, or we can become like the Corinthian church, saying things implicitly with our lives like, everyone look at me, I'm doing a good deed. Instead of saying, everyone look at God, because he has accomplished a great work on my behalf, and he's accomplished a great work in me. 
because of pride, even God's saving gospel can be and is often mutated to say, you are great, oh man. God is enamored with you and he wants to save you and bless you and give you a prosperous life. It's all about you. But that's a false gospel. That's not what the Bible declares. In contrast, the Bible says, God is so great. You ought to be enamored with him, obedient to him, grateful to him, because he showed undeserved kindness to you. Indeed, we should not look at the Tower of Babel as like, oh, you know, it's just that crazy thing that people did back then. No, the same pride of Babel is with man today. Certainly in the world, we see all sorts of manifestations of pride, people looking to exalt themselves. But even, even among God's people, pride is a temptation to which we often yield. Looking for our own glory instead of God's. Now, can we say that there's another sin taking place here beyond pride? There's a direct disobedience to God. What about the idea of scattering across the earth? Was man specifically disobeying God's command to fill the earth? After all, we see in our passage that man, besides saying, let's make a name for ourselves, they say, lest we be scattered across the face of the whole earth. And then that's exactly what God causes them to do. They are scattered across the face of the whole earth. And it is notable that Genesis 9-1 says, this is part of God's blessing to Noah, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. And Genesis 9-7 repeats the idea, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Now, many Christian theologians have said yes. Answers in Genesis says yes. Many good trusted teachers say yes. Man is directly disobeying God's command to fill the earth. And I can see where that perspective comes from. But I do have a couple of hesitations, which I feel is only right to share with you. Before we can say, yes, they're obviously sinning, we do need to notice that in what God says to Noah, filling the earth is always attached to another action, multiplying. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which makes sense. As the amount of people on earth increases, they're going to need more space. They're going to need more living room. And so they're going to naturally spread out from one another. And this is what we see actually takes place in Abram's and Lot's life. If you remember, they were journeying together. Abram with his nephew Lot, until eventually they say to one another, this land can't sustain the both of us. Let's separate from one another. So this filling the earth, it is connected with man's multiplication. And if God was commanding for man to artificially spread out, well then we have a number of questions that might arise as to how man was supposed to do this. How would they know there are too many people in one area? It's not as if God had a certain quota system where he says, whoa, a thousand people is too much for this, this spot of land. Some of you need to move along now. Now, it's possible that God gave more direct revelation that's just not recorded in the Bible. But how would man know when he needed to spread out? How would he know he was disobeying God's command? And third, these commands if they are indeed commands given to Noah regarding multiplication and filling, they're actually framed in the Bible as blessings rather than commands. If you just look back at Genesis 9-1, God's words to Noah begin with, and God blessed Noah and said to him. In fact, we see the same thing with Adam in Genesis 1 and with the animals of creation. When God says, be fruitful and multiply, it first says, and God blessed them, saying. So these were a blessing. It's a little bit similar, I think, to how we have the phrase, have a happy birthday, or happy birthday. Are you literally commanding a person to have a happy birthday or else? No, you're expressing well wishes. You are seeking to give a blessing to that person. And so it's not insignificant that these phrases about filling the earth they are framed as part of a blessing. Now, one could say, well, yeah, they are a blessing, but it's just a blessed command. 
Yeah, there may be something to that. Certainly God would be wanting to have his image filling all the earth. Remember, man is made in the image of God or as the image of God. And as the true ruler of all creation and the true ruler of the earth, God would want his image in every place. And as I say, it's significant that you can turn to almost any trusted teacher throughout history and they all say, yeah, man was refusing to spread out at Babel. And that's one of the reasons why God judged them. So even though I have some hesitation, there are some questions that I don't, I'm not sure what the answers are in terms of how man knew to spread around the earth. It is quite possible that man was also sinning in this way. Nevertheless, I don't think that's the main sin here. I think it's possible that the people of Babel could have built a city together, could have lived together, but specifically, why did they want to do that? It was to make a name for themselves. It was their pride. That was what was fueling their desire to be together. And if to disobey God, that was fueling their desire not to spread out on the earth. And why would pride be connected to that? Well, if man spreads out, he's no longer as powerful. That unity is what gives him strength. It's having all the people with their specific skills and the abilities. Let's say there's a great metal worker who's part of the city of Babel. If he moves away, well, then the whole city doesn't have that ability anymore. Or if there's a great scribe who's, who's good at writing down laws or composing laws. If he moves away, well, the glory of Babel suffers. So ultimately, it was the pride of man that was fueling whatever sins he was doing in this instance. I should also say, building a city, building a high tower, those are not sinful acts in themselves. But it was the reason that man sought to do these things. And God did not leave man unchecked in his pride and in his sin. God gave man as a judgment the very thing that man feared the diminishment of man's power, the humiliation of man's name, and the scattering of man. Took away man's unity, and he caused man to spread around the earth. But how exactly did this work? How is it that confusing the language equals spreading around the earth? Why would people with different languages suddenly move away from one another? What do you think? Well, consider, consider the danger of being with somebody who you can't understand. Even today, even when you're not in danger of somebody who doesn't speak the same language, people tend to separate from those who don't speak the same language. They don't hang out. They don't interact. It's very hard to interact with somebody who doesn't know your language. In fact, if we consider how things might have been at that time, what if a bunch of people showed up at your door, brandishing weapons, and shouting at you in a language you don't understand? Do you want to be around those people? I don't think so. <laughs> Say, oh, you know what? I think we need to move. You want to put some distance between you and them. And so these kind of things were happening at that time. You couldn't understand them. You didn't really want to hang out with them. And you're kind of afraid of them. And so you move away. People, therefore, who spoke the same language unit, and it may have been as small as one family, they separated from those who didn't speak the same language. And as families moved into new areas of the earth, they had children, and their children spread out as well. They found more land to use. And as the generations passed, and people moved further and further apart, their languages continued to change. Some languages mixed with other languages, and other languages simplified or acquired new characteristics. This is the development of dialects, which can even over time turn into whole new languages. You know, it's amazing if you're familiar with some of the families of language in, in our history, we have something called romance languages. That doesn't mean that they're really romantic. It means they all come from uh, the Roman language, Spanish, French, Italian, they're very similar to one another in some respects, but oftentimes people who speak those languages can't completely understand each other. Originally, they were one language, they were Latin. But over time, because these people didn't live in the same area, they developed new characteristics. 
so that people couldn't even speak the same language anymore. So this same thing is happening with the world after Babel. People are spreading out from one another, having children. Those children are spreading out from one another. And this leads to the rise of whole new people groups, not just separate ways of speaking, but separate ways of thinking, separate customs, separate legends, even eventually separate religions. This is really the rise of the different civilizations of our world. There was only one civilization before that, but after Babel, you had these competing civilizations and cultures, and it came from man having different language. Now consider the historical implications of this truth, this biblical truth. If all the civilizations could only emerge after Babel, then even the most ancient civilizations did not appear on the earth before Babel took place. And as I say, Babel took place, according to the genealogies of Genesis, around 2240 BC. And we don't have to worry about the civilization of pre-Babel, pre-flood man, nothing from the flood before the flood appears to have survived. The catastrophic nature of the flood, flood prevented that. The only evidence of civilization then that we can find would have to be of civilization after Babel. Now, some secular historians will probably object to this. And they'll say something like, but we know that the pyramids in Egypt were built around 2600 BC. And we know that the civilization of Egypt was founded many centuries before that. It couldn't have been that Egypt emerged after Babel because we know from historical and archaeological research that Egypt existed before that time. Hmm. Well, how should we react to that kind of assertion? Should we say, no, you know what? I guess you're right. Let me see if I can reinterpret the timeline in Genesis to conform to what you have found as a historian and our, or an archaeologist. This is the approach that many Christians take, many Christian leaders, many Christian teachers. But I think there's something being forgotten in all this, and that is we start and stay with the Bible. Remember, none of us were there in the past, do not have access to all the past data. Even historians and archaeologists, they must interpret the past using assumptions, as we've seen, as I've tried to emphasize in these lessons. When you don't start with the Bible as your fundamental assumption, if you don't use the Bible for your foundation for interpreting the past, you're going to come to wrong conclusions because you're going to make the wrong assumptions. We must stand on what is plain in the Bible. And when we do, it's actually not that hard to explain seeming historical discrepancies, to explain how a secular archaeologist can say one thing and how the Bible can say another. In the case of dating Egypt and the pyramids, it has to do with the assumptions that historians make about Egypt's history. Part of that, part of how they date the construction of the pyramids or the foundation of the kingdom of Egypt, it has to do with what Egyptian historians recorded about themselves, what ancient Egyptian historians said about their own kingdom. And the fact of the matter is, those ancient Egyptians probably exaggerated the ancientness of their civilization. They probably exaggerated the length of the various dynasties. Now, why would they do that? What do you think? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, that's a great point. It's all part of the same impulse that was displayed at Babel. It's to make a name for themselves. If you have an older kingdom, if you've been around for hundreds, thousands of years, oh, that makes you seem like you're pretty cool. If you have a, a king, or a pharaoh, who's supposedly lived for hundreds of years, well, he seems like he's a pretty big deal. And you know, the pharaohs were treated as gods in much of Egypt's history. So there was an incentive for people in Egypt, for historians to exaggerate their history for their pharaoh's sake, for their kingdom's sake. And the Egyptians weren't the only ones who did this. Greeks did this, Babylonians did this. Even in the, in the times of the New Testament, early Christians were asserting uh, a young earth, basically, against the claims of the people ar around at that day. Because 
the cultures around them said, oh, yeah, we've been around for, you know, tens of thousands of years. They said, well, that's not what the Bible says. It's just the same thing. It's an assumption, then, that modern historians have taken when it comes to Egypt and other civilizations that doesn't really check out with the Bible. It's not really justified. So that's why I say we can be confident that, yes, Egypt did emerge after Babel. And if Babel took place around 2240 BC, then Egypt must have emerged around 2100 BC or so. You know, when it comes to history, a lot of what the world assumes takes a really, really, really long time. Actually, it can take place in a much shorter amount of time. They assume, oh, it just had to take place. Of, it must have been a very spread out on the timeline. That's because they have this evolutionary assumption. Everything takes place slowly, gradually. You know, it takes a long time for anything to happen. But when you realize, no, man was sophisticated and intelligent, even at that time, he can make rapid progress. And that appears to be what man did, even after Babel spread out around the world, but civilizations then rapidly developed in the different places where man settled. Not every place, not every place was conducive to that, but in many places around the world, Egypt included. So just to sum, off, to sum up this point, unlike the histories that were written by mere men, the Bible is always trustworthy and Jesus says it cannot be broken. So again, we can be confident we stand on the scriptures and we can do that even for things like Babel. This is to, to say nothing, by the way, of how the Bible's historical claims have been vindicated again and again throughout history. And people say, oh, you know, David, King David, he never exists. There's no historical evidence that King David ever existed until they found it. And they're like, oh. And it's been, that, it's been the same thing with many, many other things. To get back to my original point, though, the process that we see starting at Babel and playing out in the rest of history is this continual mixture Mixture and separation of cultures, mixture and separation of languages, mixture and separation of people groups. We can also see that over time, these people groups began to look different from one another. Each people group began to acquire distinct physical characteristics like size, hair color, skin tone, facial structure. And we'll talk a little bit more in our, other, in our next lesson about Babel as to how that precisely happened. Now, I say that this separation at Babel took place around 2240 BC. How do we know that? Why, why do I make that claim? Well, it comes through the time details actually given to us in Genesis around this passage. Turn back to Genesis 10 for a moment. Genesis 10, look down at verses 21 to 25. This is the section that's describing Shem's descendants and how they spread out in the world. Look what it says, starting in verse 21. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hol and Gether and Mash. Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, you've got to love when a biblical author throws in a little intriguing detail in the midst of genealogy. And we see that here. It's not just like, oh yeah, Peleg was born. No, Peleg, whose name means division, we hear about him in his days, the earth was divided. What exactly does that mean? Well, some think that this division refers to the division of the continents. And in Peleg's days, the continents separated from one another. But this is unlikely because... From what we know about science today, the separation of continents would have required pretty catastrophic tectonic movements, which probably would have resulted in a worldwide flood. But God already promised he wouldn't flood the world again. So more likely, the separation of the continents took place during the flood. That's consistent with the tectonic and the volcanic activity that's, that would have been part of the flood. That's probably when the continents separated from one another. So then, in what sense was the earth divided in Peleg's days? Well, the only other major division recorded in these early chapters of Genesis is the division that takes place at Babel. Besides, it makes sense in a literary, literary way. He describes, yes, the earth was divided in Peleg's days, and then he describes how it was divided in the next chapter. So it appears to be, in Peleg's days, the earth was divided by 
the confusion of the languages. Now, how many generations went by from Shem to Peleg? If we trace it here, we have four in between Shem and Peleg. We have, or five if you count Shem. We have Shem, Arpachshad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg. Just five generations. So this means that from Shem, only four generations then came after the end of the flood, and then we had Babel. So between the flood and Babel, just four or five generations. By the way, linguistic, uh, linguistic side note, it's from Shem that we get the terms Semite and Semitic. And it's from Eber that we get another term related to the Jews. What term? Eber, that's right. And both of these would become designators for the people of Israel because they were in the, they were in the lineage of Abraham. So Babel takes place in Peleg's days, and it's only four generations from Shem. So that gives us a, a vague idea of when Babel took place, but we can even get more specific because turn over back to Genesis 11. We hear about Babel in the beginning of Genesis 11, but then there's that genealogy in the second half. And remember, this genealogy is unique. It's like the genealogy of Genesis 5 in that it is a chrono genealogy. It is a genealogy that gives us the length of days of each descendant listed and when they bore the next descendant. If you look down to verses 10 to 16, you'll see the same names that we just looked at from Genesis 10. Shem, Arpachshad, etc., down to Peleg. So if we have this time information here, how can we use this in combination with Genesis 10 to estimate when Babel happened? Well, it's pretty simple. You just add up the ages or add up the years in between the birth of each descendant from Shem to Peleg. And so when we do that, it goes something like this. Two plus 35 plus 30 plus 34 equals about 110 years. About 110 years went by between Shem and Peleg. That means because the confusion of languages, the division of the earth by language took place in the days of Peleg, that Babel probably took place around 110 years after the flood. Now, was it exactly 110 years? Well, it's a little hard to say because chapter 10 says the earth was divided in Peleg's days, so sometime during his life. However, Peleg's name means division. Peleg's name means division, and presumably that division must have happened then early in his life, because otherwise, why would he have had that as his name? So again, it probably is just about 110 years from the flood that Babel takes place. Not a long time. And again, that shows us man's heart. So we see that God, through Moses, saw fit to give the people of Israel and us today specific time details so that they would know when key events took place in history in relation to their own time. And this is consistent with the other kind of time details that we've already observed in Genesis. Moses and the Spirit of God were very intent on having the people know where they fit in the timeline of history. Now, even though this rebellion at Babel was a very ancient event, the memories of Babel are still evident all over the world today. The memories of Babel are observable in the world today. And we can see this, first of all, archaeologically. We have the Tower of Babel, which is probably a ziggurat-type structure, a step pyramid structure, and we see the same structure, the same kind of structure, all over the world. Now, I show you some here on the screen. Some of these are in South America, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, all very similar type structure, these step pyramids or ziggurat-type structures. And what is interesting, too, is that all of these, to my knowledge, were used as religious type structures, a place to meet with God, a place to extend into the heavens to, to offer sacrifices or to meet with the gods. This is not surprising considering that Babel actually took place. Now, someone might say, well, 
Well, the reason there are step periods every, everywhere is because they were, they were an easy structure to build. People all came to the same conclusion. If we're going to build a pyramid type structure, we got to build it this way because that's just how you build those types of things. Maybe there is something to that. But it is still significant that these structures would all be similar to one another, even when spread out around the earth, considering that we know that Babel took place. The descendants of Babel, these first groups of people, as they spread out around the earth, they would have carried with them memories of the events of Babel. And so similar tower structures are not surprising, especially as monuments to themselves or for some sort of religious purpose. Another interesting evidence we see of Babel, uh, memory of Babel around the world, has to do with legends involving one language splitting into all the languages of the world. This is not just recorded in the Bible, but we see these even in legends spread out all over the earth. Consider, I, I don't have a slide about this, but I'll just tell you about it. The Quiche of Guatemala, they told of a time when the tribes had multiplied and they left their old home for a place called Tulam. And here, the language changed and the people sought new homes in various parts of the world as a result of not being able to understand one another. That's just like what the Bible says. Or the Mekir tribe, in northeastern India, they tell of the descendants of Ram, who were strong men and were growing dissatisfied with the earth and aspired to conquer heaven. They thus began to build a tower. Higher and higher rose the building, their, their legend says, till at last the gods and demons feared lest these giants should become masters of heaven, as they already were of earth. So they confounded their speech and they scattered them to the four corners of the world. Hence arose all the various tongues of mankind. Or how about this? Polynesians on the islands of Howe, they said that Rata and his three sons, they survived a great flood. Then they made an attempt to erect a building by which they could reach the sky and see the creator god, Batea. But this god in anger chased the builders away. He broke down their building and he changed their language so that they spoke diverse tongues. It's just like what God says in the Bible. Now, there are some alterations, but this makes sense because Babel actually took place and the historical memory of it, it was carried by the peoples all over the earth. Now, a skeptic will hear all this and say, well, see, this is just evidence that the Bible is a story, just a myth that was borrowed from other myths from the cultures around them. But again, that, that's a conclusion that comes from certain presuppositions, certain assumptions, anti-supernatural, anti-biblical, evolutionary, etc. And we know that the Bible is true. So actually, it's the opposite. These things don't show that the Bible is untrue. They are just another testimony that the Bible is true. Because Babel actually happened, because God actually separated the language from, languages from one another, we would expect the memory of Babel to exist in various cultures. And that's precisely what we see. By the way, if you'd like to hear more about these legends that I just shared with you or hear about others, you can find those at answersingenesis.org in the article entitled Tongue Twisting Tales. Tongue Twisting, tongue, oh, I can't even say it. Tongue Twisting Tales at answersingenesis.org. So we've seen today that what happened roughly 4,200 years ago has affected us all because of our forefathers, because of our, as men, prideful rebellion at Babel, we have the many different languages and people groups that we do today. But before we finish talking about Babel, I want to, to explore at least two other main questions. And these are kind of interpretation, kind of application. First, what attributes of God does this judgment on people by confusing their languages demonstrate? What do you think? Well, certainly it demonstrates his holiness, right? His holiness and justice. He's a God who hates sin. He hates sinful pride. And so he acted. He acted in judgment, just as he will against all sin. God greatly humbled man 
just as the scripture says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we see God's holiness. What else do we see? We see his mercy. And this is something we shouldn't miss here. There is mercy being displayed here. There's patience. There's compassion. How so? It's because God did not choose to destroy man. I mean, man is doing the same thing, just another version of what he did before the flood. God had every right to destroy all of man. Say, oh, they're rebelling again. Time to wipe them out. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even do what he did with Noah and just saving a few people. No, he only chose to curse man by confusing his language. But even this, in a way, was a mercy. This judgment was a mercy because of confusing man's language, God limited man's ability to rebel against God. When man was totally united, he used that unity to exalt himself in and against God. But when God breaks that unity, man can't face God that way anymore. Which makes me think, in light of this, would it be good if in our world, mankind became totally united, one language, one culture, one government, one church, etc.? Would that be a good thing? We'd like to think so, right? Unity, unity is a great thing. But no, because of the heart of man. Man would use this unity to actually rebel against God. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking, hey, that reminds me. Isn't that exactly what the book of Revelation says? The book of Revelation describes a future in which man will be united under the Antichrist in the system known as Babylon. What does man do with that unity? He fights against God. He fights against God's people. So in a sense, the confusion of man's language was a mercy from God because it prevented man from uniting in rebellion against God. So it was a judgment and yet a mercy. And there's also something here about God's faithfulness. God promised he would never destroy the world again with water, and he refrains to do that here, even under flagrant even when man is being flagrantly disobedient. And there's also God's faithfulness to his promise to the woman in the garden. He said, there will be a godly seed that will be opposed to the seed of the serpent. And one from that godly seed will one day come and defeat the serpent. That can't happen if God wipes out all of humanity. So God proves himself faithful. He says, I've made a promise. I'm going to make sure it comes to pass. I will not destroy all of man because I've made this promise. So again, we see the faithfulness of God. We see the power of God for sure. By a simple command, God sends all the rebels of, of the earth into total chaos. In an instant, he totally reprograms each person's brain to speak and understand a new language. And it's really hard to learn a new language. I don't know if any of you have tried. You can speak multiple languages. It's really hard. But God did it in an instant. And he wiped out any understanding of the old language that they had. This is a powerful God who is also holy, who is also just, who is also faithful, and is also merciful. See, all of these attributes of God in display in our text. And why? Same reason why it was given to Israel, so that we might regard God rightly, that we would take him seriously, and that we would seek his mercy for we ourselves are sinners, and we need God's mercy. Now, here's another question. How does life in Christ interact with the curse of Babel? How, do, how does the salvation we have in Christ interact with these things we've learned about Babel? You may notice that in Christ, Man does return to unity. And man does return to power. But in God, not in man. Consider the force that the church is supposed to be when it conforms to God's design. God describes his church as a body, and a body in which each member, though differing from one another and excelling in various areas, excelling in different gifts, they're all devoted to one goal, glorifying God 
and declaring his gospel. When the church is united, they become powerful, not in their strength, but in God's strength in a similar way, actually even in a greater way than man's unity at Babel. Really, the unity that man displayed at Babel is just an evil mutation of what God always meant man to be. And we see this in how God designed the church. We are to be united as a people, as the people of God, even more united than <clears throat> the people were at Babel, because our unity doesn't come from sharing the same language or the same culture. No, we're all different in those ways, if we consider the church around the world. And we're not united in self-glorification, but we're united in Christ. We've actually been placed into God's Son. And this unity transcends language or culture. We have a bond that no other people on earth can have. And our power is not based off of human intelligence, creativity, or strength, but God's supreme wisdom and his life-giving spirit. But the question is, if Christ, in a sense, reverses Babel for his people, is that what we experience? Are you today, are you united with your brothers and sisters in the goal of the gospel? Are you using the gifts that God gave you together with your brothers and sisters for that goal? This is the main reason why we are still on earth. It is to glorify God. It is to make him known. It is to fulfill the Great Commission. We all have different roles to play in that, but we are to be united in that purpose as we are united in Christ. But are we? Are you? I'm sure we have a certain level of unity, certain level of cooperation in using our gifts, but is it where God really wants us to be? There's something else that's reversed when it comes to Christ and Babel, is that what do we see in the book of Revelation? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation glorifying God, saying, you are worthy of all power, glory, and honor. In the direct contrast to Babel, right? Man was looking for his own glory. But in the end, all peoples, people from every kind of tongue, tribe, and nation, will be ascribing glory to God. God is going to use us to bring that about. And we are to be united in that purpose. Our history, our ancient history is tragic. The flood, Babel, the fall. But in Christ, it is made wondrous. He indeed makes everything new. But he has given us a charge when it comes to the church and our unity and our service, and we want to fulfill that charge. That's all I have for you today. Any quick questions before we end? Okay. Well, as I say, that's all for this week. Next week is review week. But I'm actually going to be away. I won't be with you next week. Steve Como, I know he's not here today because he's, he's uh, traveling. Steve Como has graciously agreed to lead the Sunday School class in the review day. They're going to be watching and discussing a video presentation that has to do with what we've been learning over the last uh, unit. So I won't see you next week. And then the week after is Resurrection Sunday, and we won't have Sunday School. So that means it'll be three weeks from now, the next time I get to see you. But when we come back, or to return to Babel and talk about how, even though man separated into different people groups, we are still one race. We may begin to look different from one another, but we are all still one, one race, one blood, and all in need of Christ. Talk about that more next time. Let's pray as we end today. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy. You, Lord, you displayed your power, your holiness at, at Babel. Man was so ridiculous in his pride to try and exalt himself against you, to not pay attention to you. And Lord, we can do the same thing today, even as Christians. God, forgive us. Forgive us for where we do such a heinous, ugly thing. But Lord, we thank you that you have forgiven us in Christ, even for all our pride. All of that has been wiped out, paid for by Christ's amazing work on the cross. 
And yet, God, walking worthy with you means that we must get rid of pride. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would do the work of humbling, God. It can be painful, Lord, but we need that. If we want the blessed way, if we want to walk worthy, we need to be humble and not proud. And, Lord, we know that manifests in many ways, prayer being one of them. But, Lord, accomplish that among your people. And that, Lord, we know that humility also leads to unity. It leads to having patience with one another, and it leads to being united in purpose, serving one another. And I pray that you would do that for Calvary. I pray that you would do that for your people. Lord, that we would conform to your design as you created us and also as you recreated us in Christ. For your glory, God, and for our good, for our joy. Thank you for your wonderful design. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. I'll see you in a few weeks.